0: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss the electro revival that began in the early 90s, got a lot of attention as electro clash when it moved to Brooklyn, and had a surprising amount of influence on 21st century music. Email us at letitrollpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll or should I say techno roll? That means it's me, your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Hartness to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And Ryan, we are getting close to the finish line because this episode is about that turn of the millennium trend called Electro Clash. Are we excited?
2: I'm very excited because this is one of the first musical like dance music trends that I I got to see kind of happen and then die out and then change and, and morph into other things. So I was here for this. This is exciting. All these years we've been spending on house and techno and everything else like that. It was before my time. Uh, and now, finally, this is something that I lived through.
1: All right. I was even pretty aware of this when it was happening. I was divorced and dating a much hipper woman who was uh, alert to what was going on in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and other hip scenes like that. So real quick, electro clash. What is it?
2: Okay, well, I mean, basically, what it is is, it's kind of a, a mixture of techno and house, uh, where they brought in a lot of the, a lot of the old school kind of uh, hip hop electro 808 sounds from the drum machine. They brought a lot of that back. They slowed everything down. And they they brought back that 808 drum drum machine sound that that had kind of gone away for smoother uh, smoother percussions. And then on top of that, they uh, they added a whole bunch of 80s influenced synthesizer and new wave sounds. And they also kind of went away from how dance music is just being a lot of like loops and blips and bloops and uh, and kind of really kind of tonal structures. Now they've returned firmly back to the realm of of the pop music structure and that's i think where electroclash really fits in is that you've got a bunch of these electronic artists making kind of technoey music but with a song, song structure again for the first time in a while.
1: And the subject matter and the vibe was kind of nasty and decadent too. Yeah, i
2: mean it was really sexual, uh, cynical, uh, it was uh, self-indulgent and it was it was it was a lot of fun. The the thing that i like about this is that uh, dance music had started to really go up its own ass uh, and uh electroclash or at least the electroclash scene as it was developed out of uh, Williamsburg in New York uh, like managed to make it fun again which was a real rarity
1: and it was sort of a brief shiny moment that um fate and circumstance crushed brutally but we'll get to that um and 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 Reynolds focuses like for he's writing this in 2002 and he goes to Brooklyn and goes to a club called Berlinian Berliniumsberg. Am I saying that right Berlin Berliniumsberg. So it's yeah, a Berlin, meets Berlin.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I think from reading other things he kind of he does mention DJ DJ Hell, but I I could swear the word Munich does not appear in this chapter. He he recognizes that there were plenty of German artists and German labels, but other sources tell me. They're I correct- mean Really,
2: what it was, was you have Larry T, who was in Williamsburg. He was the one that coined electroclash, and he he was the one that that pushed it the same way we had uh, Balearic being pushed uh, by Danny Rampling. Larry T was the guy who who evangelized for electroclash and his electroclash nights. But, but where that Electroclash sound came from was guys like uh, DJ Hell, who was a German uh, producer slash DJ slash record label guy. He ran International DJ Gigolo Records, and he was releasing weird electro records on his kind of techno label for, for years and years uh, before Electroclash became a thing. And it's funny, uh, like I think it was four years before. Before Electro Clash became a big thing, he had a little track on International DJ Giglo Records called uh Zombie Nation by Kraft Current. You might have heard of it. And DJ Hell basically had to disown that track because that was a slice of electro right there that that just got out of control and too big for him. So he just disowned it.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, most record label owners would have just taken the money and run, maybe started a new label for their artsy projects, but not our DJ Hell. Yeah, he was having major tracks like Christopher Just's I'm a Disco Dancer in 1997, released Chris Corda's Save the Planet, Kill Yourself, which that came out really early in the 90s. But then I think DJ Hell put it out again a little bit later. They also had 1982, about the same artist yet or no sorry 1982 and Frank Sinatra were by Miss Kitten and the Hacker Frank Sinatra was a big enough hit that I was aware of it at the time um emerge by the New York Duo Fisher Spooner and sunglasses at night a cover of Corey Hart's 80s anthem by Tiga and Xentherius from 2001 so he's kind of the maven of the genre brought brought the artists of the new genre together on his label and acted primarily as their mentor Um, also put out his own album, Munich Machine, in 1998, and spread the joy to other cities like Berlin, London, and New York. And let's say I think we've covered sort of the sound of it. But I've got this quote from Master Class. I just can't resist. It's a lo-fi mix of synth-pop, retro new wave, rock, and no wave drone. Was only part of the electroclash aesthetic. Electroclash artists and bands such as Peaches, Miss Kitten, and Fisher Spooner drew upon a confrontational style of performance art in their lyrics and performances, which could be crass, archly comic, and defiantly decadent. I would say there's a huge John Waters and Divine influence all over the scene. Um, Oh
2: yeah. They, they brought the drag show and they brought the burlesque vibe to things. And uh, that, that's a big part of that comes out of, this is, this is kind of where we leave Berlin. You give DJ hell a lot of credit and the guys in Germany for, for, for starting to mix their, their house and their electro and everything else like that. But it was, it really was Larry T and the New York people who brought that brought that 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 punk DIY uh, performance attitude towards it, where anybody with a with a drum machine and uh, a big enough pair of balls could get up on the stage and, and do something nuts or or no balls at all. Because this is, to me, the most interesting thing about this. Um, well, there's two things. Uh, the first Simon Reynolds points this out is this is the first time that dance music basically went back and picked something old back up and dusted it off and created a whole new scene out of it. This is the first time that they've gone, we've gone retro, you know, everything else was pretty forward moving. And this one here went back and took something old and, and and started rejigging it. So that's cool. But the other element about it is that for so many, so many different genres, uh, you have the, the gay club scene to thank for, uh, this one here, I think is the first time that I really noticed that, that it's the lesbian scene and the queer scene, the, these are these are the people that are really pushing this. We had a, a really big electroclash scene in Montreal, and it was the first time I had ever been to a, a dance music event where it was just all women. I was very impressed, like, uh, for years and years and years. And all through this podcast, I feel, we'd keep on talking about the guys. And electroclash is, I think, the first time where the women start breaking out, both in Berlin and in New York and in Montreal, where I was as well.
1: Yeah, and it's... Um not just lesbians, but straight women as well. It's it's a very modern update, I think, of where queer culture was around 2000 versus where gay culture was in the early 80s. I mean, so many similarities with, the, say, the high energy scene or the original disco scene or the original house scene in Chicago, but a lot of changes. And, and you can tell it was um, you know, updated for the new millennium. And also, I think the the lo-fi thing, and you had people like you know Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill, the the legendary Riot Girl group, she rebranded a new group called uh, Le Tigre, and there's definitely a DIY aspect to this because the old tech had gotten so cheap and lo-fi that there was definitely sort of a self-conscious, punky, lo-fi vibe to this. It, w- it was... I'd say sort of different than when hip hop producers sort of rediscovered the 808 and self consciously went back to electro sounds because they didn't they upped the professionalism and the polish the the dance the dance scene went in another direction uh, and went and that's you
2: know. usually very it's usually the opposite the dance scene usually goes for for putting an extra uh, an extra coat a gloss on everything, but this time they went back to it and they were kind of trying to emulate, I think the old, uh, new wave cassette tape sound. And and, I mean, the, the greatest thing about that is if, 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 if you're going for that sound, you don't need someone who knows how to master things up to a certain level of quality. So it really did open up the door for, a bunch of uh, you know people who were more performance artists maybe than they were musicians to make some really interesting stuff, regardless of their of their ability to you know sit in front of a of a console and and really eke out every la- last little bit of fidelity.
1: And let's hear our first track. This is Christopher Just's I'm a Disco Dancer from 1997. Why'd you pick this one? I mean, you got to go back and hear electro,
2: where where electro was in 1997, versus, you know, as we get into this scene, the scene explodes around 2000, 2001. So here's 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 the proto, here's where electro was kind of sitting in 1997.
1: Okay, that was Christopher Just. I'm a disco dancer.
3: Your body. Your body. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wanna check the light with
1: here comes the music and that was Christopher Just. I'm a disco dancer from 1997, kind of the proto-electro-clash sound. And lest we think that um, DJ Hell monopolized the whole genre with his international DJ gigolo records, there was uh, a bunch of other artists on other labels. IF had Space Invaders or Smoking Grass in 98 on Disco B. Uh, The Chicks on Speed, Peaches, Adult, Dot, and Talk Talk. Do they say the Dot with Adult, or is it just called Adult? And you have to know there's a Dot afterwards. Oh, you can't
2: ask me. I always seem to get those things completely wrong.
1: <laughs> all right, all right. So that'll just be a mystery. It makes it easier to Google. I think it was clever on their part. Uh, talk, talk versus Sofio. Had Missy Queen's going to die in 2000? Well, Ladytron from Liverpool were sometimes labeled as Electro Clash. They pushed back against it, but they were electroclash. Let's. Uh,
2: I mean, you just have to understand that that it's kind of you've got Electro as an overarching uh, thing, and Electro Clash is more of a specific kind of era slash sound so you had the electro clash scene in new york that guys like fisher spooner and uh and peaches and a couple other people came out of they, they represented that that kind of live new wave band slash punk ethos and then you had uh, everybody else who was who was trying to sit more in, in a in an overarching international uh sound and they they preferred just the over overall electro Electro thing that was going on, and it, it was smart because Ladytron's still out there, kind of relevant, while everybody who attached their name to the to the electro clash fad, kind of went down with the ship.
1: Oh, well, there I stand. I stand corrected. Um, and then let's get into Reynolds. Reynolds goes in 2002 to the Brooklyn club Berliniumsburg, Larry T's club, and he finds quote a parallel universe where rave never happened. He says the crowds recycling elements of 1980s fashion. The asymmetric, or what we called new wave haircuts back in the day, roughly shirts, skinny ties over collarless t-shirts, uh, spiked punk belts and wristbands, little cloth little cloth caps. But he points out that the fashion's a lot tighter than it was in the 80s. And as somebody who was there in the 80s and then is there for the revival in the 2000s, he's picking up on all the things that have been changed. It's never. An exact recreation. There's always certain elements that are emphasized, other elements that are dropped. Whenever you have a retro scene, I mean, there's a joke I can remember seeing. Somebody was uh, drawing a cartoon of people dressed up like, you know, '50s greasers, and somebody was like, "I'm doing a '70s '50s," and somebody else was like, "I'm doing an '80s '50s." It's 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 that phenomenon. Each era picks, even when even in their retro m- movements, they're going to pick certain aspects that fit in with their time. <clears throat> but Reynolds, you know, and he he picks up on the. The sound, he of course, references New Orders, Blue Monday as a as a lodestar for these kids. The vocoderized robot singing, which he points out was a bigger part of the electro electroclash scene than it. it was a really pretty small part of the 80s scene. But it was just something that was distinctive for that time and was remembered. Um, and he also says there's a textured intricacy to the beats in production that testifies to the technical advances of the prior 15 years, lessons that couldn't be unlearned. So even when they were trying to do it DIY, and lo fi, they still uh, put a shine on it to some extent. But he says the key what if is what if ecstasy had never been invented? You know, he's written this whole book about the ecstasy generation, the ecstasy revolution. And here, almost right after the initial publication of his book, here comes the whole new generation of kids who are abandoning the very ethos of e-culture, the egalitarian unity, the ideal of merging with the crowd, a.k.a. only connect. It's a generation of kids bored with the whole gamut of post-rave dance music, everything from trance and progressive to filter house. They're done with. They don't like the anonymous collective, They have reconfigured the dance floor as a stage for posers and coke spiked narcissistic display because they've only known ecstasy culture as a fixture, predictable and plebeian. And they reject the notion of trans dance itself, they're grasping for some kind of edge. It's just the inevitable cycle of generations, is it not?
2: Yeah. And Larry T is an interesting character. And uh, you know, as somebody who who went out there and, and pushed the genre, you can find lots of interviews with him. And he's he's a wild person to listen to. And he admits that, you know, he fell he fell off the wagon hard and became a drug addict and enjoyed all the house and techno life that you could in New York's, uh, in the, in the mid nineties. And then he sobered up and realized he did not like, you know, anything going on anymore. And he just felt like shooting himself every time there was a 12 minute progressive track played at a club. And he said, there wasn't one laugh left in house music. And he was looking for the next big thing. And, uh, it, it's just really fascinating when you see like one person kind of take an idea take a sound and and again like you can't just boil it down to Larry T and DJ Hell DJ Hell was lifting up things that were going on in, across you know Europe and Germany at the time but Larry T is the one that took like a, a magnifying glass and held it up to the sun and boiled it down and 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 created an environment where basically you get a bunch of bands to come up and do like a drag show, basically all these bands coming and just flipping over onto the stage, doing two or three songs, standing in their underwear, you know, dry humping while, while singing and then get off and put on another one and then another one and another one. And everybody there is completely into it. And everybody's dressed up like, like they're right out of 1988. It's just, it, it's, it take, it takes uh, a visionary of sorts to do that kind of thing and pull it off and make it work. At one point,
1: 1982, not 1988, um, they were they were going for that early '80s vibe, and he didn't hit it out of the park right away. He started the first with a club he called Club Bad, which was a, a club night started in the East Village in Manhattan, and it drew a small crowd. It was four people who were bored with house house techno trance and drum and bass. It said it drew a crowd of drag queens, disaffected gays, fashion fashionable straights. As fours, which referred to a series of art happenings, and so the crowd that were drawn to those kind of art happenings, alterna rockers and electro freaks. And remember, this is a point in the rock scene. When we've been through grunge and post grunge and new metal and there's this and pop punk and the Sky Revival have all happened. And there's the new kids on the block is this kind of garage revival scene like the White Stripes and the Strokes, which are much hipper than the previous iterations of rock bands had been so. were very likely to see somebody from the strokes at a place like club bad which is not true of say (laughs) corn you weren't gonna catch corn at the hippest dance club in manhattan but the strokes had that and there was this it was really interesting to me as somebody who'd watched rocker fashion and gay fashion for a couple decades by this point that there was a point when rocker fashion and gay fashion had been very far apart in the early 90s but by the late 90s they had totally merged and so um this is an electro clash was definitely a scene that was closer to rock because of its song structures, because of its relationship, its emulation of things like um, New Order and stuff that that were familiar to rock fans. And it wasn't just about Africa Bambaataa and Mantronics and the kind of artists you think of and Houdini and others that you think of when you think electro It was also those early 80s since pop. And honestly, for God's sake, I got to shout out Mantronics and the whole electro scene, because that was a scene that was only big for like two or three years. And then Run DMC came along and annihilated it. It sort of lingered on in things like Two Live Crew and the Miami base scene and never quite went away, the ghetto tech scene in Detroit. Um, But, you know, it never completely died out, but it never got its proper. So it was kind of gratifying to me as somebody who'd been a fan of Mantronics back in the day to finally see Electro getting some shine. I just I just think
2: that it's maybe one of those situations where people people kind of took took from Electro and then just left the history behind. Like it's another it's definitely another example of us whitewashing uh, a scene because the the Electro uh, clash scene was extremely white. I Felix, Felix yeah Felix the house cat is basically the only black person I could find in it. Um, and, uh, like, uh, when, when you're looking for references to the original electro, it was a very brief blip. And some of the samples that I chose for the, for the show, I, I looked for those tracks that had the old school electro 808 drum percussion sounds. And truth of the matter is like, I'd say a couple, like maybe a year or two in, I mean, this is only a, this, this was a five-year phenomenon. So maybe two years in, they, they even dropped, they they dropped the old electro references in favor of exploring new electro synth sounds. So it, it was really a very brief period of time where there was a bridge between what was known as like electro in the early 80s and electro as it became as a dance phenomenon.
1: Yep. And let's hear our next song. This is Tiga and Xanthiris covering Corey Hart's Sunglasses at Night. Tiga and Zentherius doing Sunglasses at Night, made famous in the 80s by Corey Hart. Why'd you pick this one?
2: I, I just figured it was a good representation of a lot of Electro Clash kind of was uh, were remixes of, of old 80s tunes. It has the the 80s electro percussion to it. It has that thinner. Production style that electro clash kind of preferred, and Tiga is a Montreal guy, so he's my dude. So I figured it would be uh it would be good to include
1: something that Tiga did. All right, some some um, blatant lo- localism there, and and this cover, you know, the '80s were kind of hot around the turn of the millennium, and even in the new metal scene, Limp Biscuit was covering George Michael's Faith. uh I can't Alien Ant Farm, I think was covering Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal, so it was just kind of in the air. Right around the turn of the millennium, and yeah, that sunglasses at night. I hated it, hated it, hated it (laughs) because it was on the radio so much in the 80s. But when it came back, I had to admit, okay, that's a good song. You know, I mean, that's the song that stood the test of time and people just dig it. Um, And then we come to the Electro Clash Festival in 2001. This is the moment you were talking about where Larry Larry T. organizes it, puts a a ribbon on it, you know, gets gets the key acts together, puts a name on it, and it, it's in Manhattan or it's in Brooklyn. So it gets a ton of media attention. And this is kind of the last era. And maybe it's not dead yet, but I'm not feeling optimistic about it. But 20 years ago, there was a legit media scene in New York. The city was just crawling with people who are going to go on to you know, be gawker and uh, publications like that, that that were ready for a new scene, ready to document it, ready to tell the story. And so they really amplified this scene. Um, he had Peaches, Adult, Chicks on Speed playing there. And, of course, it was immediately dogged by controversy as Larry T. and DJ Hell had a falling out over everything. And any insight on that, Tiff? I mean,
2: DJ Hell is just uh, – I mean, anybody who's willing to uh, to basically throw away hit like Kraft Kern, 40, 40, uh, 400s uh, – Zombie Nation, it goes to show you that this is a person who has an idea of what selling out is and isn't, and has an idea of, of how he wants things to be run. And the truth of the matter is, like what DJ Hell and what Larry T were doing were two different things. Uh, DJ Hell was never super comfortable with the label Electro Clash. And I think at that point, you had a whole bunch of magazines. It, it basically, Electro Clash won as a brand, uh, as a label. And we don't even fight it now. Like now, now we, now it's just accepted. But at the time, that was kind of like uh, a little bit of a battle for the soul, and a lot of people felt like Larry T was taking too much ownership of it. And what had he done? He had, you know. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that that basically you have someone like DJ Hell, who feels like the whole thing has gotten away from him. And Larry T. becoming this this kind of the the face of of the whole genre, despite not releasing music or not doing anything like that. I, I can see where egos can get in the way,
1: uh, yeah. it's a time. it's a it's an oft told tale. Um, and, and you know, and one thing I didn't mention about Club Bad that um, I want to mention before we move on was that the body and soul was was a club that had been kind of the deep house flagship in New York City. And it was, kind of the home of New York City gay culture for a big chunk of the 90s. But these folks felt that it was, quote, self-suffocated by its own reverence for the lost age of disco. So that kind of, you know, Larry LeVon, um, you know, the Paradise Garage kept the torch burning. But these folks felt like, you know, they were kind of keeping the torch burning too long and they wanted to put some fun back into it and get away from, you know, the seventies and eighties were over by this point. Let's let's you know the, the king is dead, long live the king. Let's move on and, and do something new. Sounds and this, get
2: tired. They need to. There there needs to be new blood that comes in and and exposes people to new things. And at this point, uh, disco house had gone had seemingly gone as far as he could go because God knows electro clash leads into French touch uh, in a, in a big way, but we'll get to that. But yeah, disco house felt tired, progressive house, progressive trance, trance, techno, minimal, all that stuff. it just, as I said, up its own butt.
1: And was the, what was going on in London with the UK garage scene and the two-step scene, was that, were people just oblivious to that in the States and other places, or were they uh, put off by the blackness of that scene or was there a crossover Were these scenes talking with each other? Or were they just on parallel tracks?
2: Uh, I mean, it was just a completely underground thing. You could hear speed garage and UK garage at a rave. You'd have like a DJ in a, in a, like a, if there's like a three room party with like 40 DJs, there'd be maybe two speed garage DJs just in there. Uh, as like a matter of fact, like we had a speed garage resident at all of our events, a uh, shout out to Philly blunt. And it was just, it was just another, another genre on the menu that you offered uh, at underground raves, but there wasn't like, and I'm sure there were cities that had speed garage nights and stuff like that, but there was no movement or no, no scene uh, aside from, from just like what you could get as part of the underground dance scene.
1: Yeah. And I imagine that they were handicapped a bit by their commercial success in England as well. I've noticed that when a scene breaks through pop in the UK without having established sort of its bona fides, Around the world, that it kind of gets seen as some sort of parochial scene, and, and people in the states tend to write it off. Yeah, um, well, when the Spice
2: Girls start uh, releasing uh, speed garage <laughs> tracks, it definitely it definitely feels like something that's starting to stink, you know? Yep.
1: <laughs> exactly. But electro clash is sort of global. You've got uh, you mentioned Tiga from Montreal. You also had Solvent from elsewhere in Canada. Uh, you had. It wasn't just Munich. You had uh, a bunch of labels out of Germany like B-Pitch Control, Laser Gun, Muller. You had uh, a scene going on in Holland with the artists Vulex and Lego Belt. Uh, you had – Britain did have a, a mark, although Lady Tron, I think, was from Liverpool. You had the DMX crew, Lay Rhythms Digitalis. Um, forgive me for butchering that. And I don't know where those last two were from, but I'd be kind of surprised if they were from London. Um, you had Chicago, of course, represented. Tommy Sunshine's Electro Sweat Club was going on. You mentioned Felix the House Cats uh, was a part of the scene, his Glamorama project in particular. Um, Detroit and Ann Arbor, the college town just north of Detroit, had a scene going as well. You had the Ertzatz audio label, the Interdimensional Transmissions label. Uh, Ghostly International label, plus artists like Doppler Effect, Ectomorph, and Adult. We've talked about Adult a couple of times. And we'll cu- we'll talk um, a, a little bit more about Doppler Effect because Detroit, not surprisingly, was early to the scene. And in New York, you had Berliniumsburg, uh, T's label, Mogul Electro. And also, and this was kind of cryptic. Maybe you can clarify, maybe you can't. Operators like John Selway, Khan, Daniel Wang, and Metro Area what does that even mean? Were these were these promoters or?
2: I assume that it must be. I I actually I haven't heard of any of those guys, but I'm assuming it's like people who are kind of uh, movers and shakers in the scene pushing this sound.
1: Yeah. Okay. That 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 makes sense. And we didn't read about them. They didn't murder anybody or become part of the billionaire boys club or any of that kind of. There's a ton of tellalls from the club scene in New York in the late '90s and early 2000s, and I don't recall them ever coming up. But I'd have to I'd have to go through. Same and uh,
2: Simon Reynolds brings up Michael Alec, who is, the, who is the New York club promoter slash killer guy. So he was he was kind of floating around right at the, at the beginning of this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I think he talked about that. It's been a few weeks since we talked about it, but in time, it wasn't that far. We had just not been back to New York in a while. But let's take a break and hear from our sponsor, and we'll come back. We'll talk about the roots of the Electro Clash fad or trend. All right, so let's get back to Detroit in the early '90s, and I wasn't surprised to hear that, you know, um, somebody associated with the underground resistance, one of the key Detroit techno 2.0 era groups, um, was a leader in this. That the the Reynolds Flags, and I think I'm saying this right, Drexia, Drexia, and he gets Drexia.
2: Drexia. Drexia.
1: Okay, good, good. Um, Drexia was uh, early pioneers of the scenes, and then one of those members spun off to form Doppler Effect, which really pushed the retro electro thing kind of on their own in the the mid and early 90s, when really almost nobody else was doing it at the time.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, all of the Berlin guys, all the German guys, like point towards the early... The, the early techno sound uh, as being the most influential element of, of the electro sound for them. And I feel like a lot of the electro clash people from New York and, and North America and stuff like that were looking more towards new wave elements of it.
1: I think that's an important distinction. And also, I think one of the reasons that Detroit... Detroit A really never abandoned that sound like the techno tradition kind of stayed going the whole time but there was another scene in Detroit um, that kept the 808 never put it down I I mentioned Miami Bass never dropped the 808 there was also New Orleans Bounce which is a really fascinating uh, hip hop regional style they never abandoned the 808 and Bounce was getting bigger and bigger around the turn of the millennium all of New Orleans hip hop was really big around the turn of the millennium but in Detroit you had Ghetto Tech, which was what they were playing in the strip clubs, and it was way more popular than techno ever was in Detroit. And you had people like DJ Assault, um, who is just a classic hip-hop entrepreneur who's selling, you know, cassettes out of the trunk of his car and stocking convenience stores and stuff all over Detroit with this stuff. And, you know, it was big. And so the the dance producers couldn't help but hear this stuff. And Uh, You know, it it spilled over even even somebody like Jay Dilla, who was, you know, Detroit's first sort of legit hip hop producer to make it in the mainstream and break out of Detroit. He's at the strip clubs listening to this stuff, and he's also here in techno. And so there's kind of a lot of things mixing together in the air around this time, even though Jay Dilla is best known for that kind of tribe called Quest la soul native tongues type style, which is very. The opposite of techno, closer to acid jazz, anything we've talked about. But anyway, a lot of stuff going on in Detroit. And Doppler Effect, again, is another one of these bands that are playing with, I wouldn't say fascist iconography, or would I <laughs> i so- mean
2: it's 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 hard to put it into context these days, uh because you see this kind of stuff so differently, but I guess it's one of those things where fascism seems so far away at the time that there was no harm really in going and making records and 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 plastering like tanks and and, and and gas masks and stuff like that on the front of it because nobody nobody was looking at the government and saying we're we're close to this we were still kind of in that you know uh as as a culture it, it felt like the government was still so far away from that kind of stuff that we could we could kind of look at it as some kind of weird science fiction dystopia idea that we could play with whereas now i think uh you know it's kind of it's kind of like uh you don't joke about that stuff anymore. You don't creatively, uh, you don't creatively mess around with that stuff anymore because it's too close to, to the truth or what might happen. Nobody, nobody, nobody finds it fun anymore, uh, to, to, to kind of play with any of these ideas the way that maybe in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, you, you had more of a, you know, nobody, nobody worried, wor- worried whether or not underground resistance were secret Nazis or something like that. Where nowadays, I think if you released a record with, you know, the name of the track is like some Nazi submarine, people would be uh, questioning things a little yeah, bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, there was an extreme right wing active in the states in the 90s, but it was people like Timothy McVeigh and David Koresh, and they were not playing with fascist iconography. They were waving the American flag, um, and and. There were Nazis, but they were very, very minor, a little bit in the punk scene. So somebody like a black group from Detroit, like Doppler Effect, could play with with German titles and iconography in all kinds of ways, and nobody thought anything about it. Um, And then the... Reynolds gets in a little bit into the technical side and what's going on. And he's he's saying it's not just the heavy bass and the melody, but it's also that they syncopated things and they and they went back to a little bit more of the funk. And that something something like Space Invaders or Smoking Grass by IF um had a bit more of a groove to it than some a lot of the stuff that was going on in techno. I mean, techno really had gotten extremely austere and minimal um, by this point. And then the second thing, you know, he really talks about this reemergence of vocals, but then he points out it wasn't just in this scene. Like when we did the deep house scene, Green Velvet was talking all over his tracks and hilariously. So he also had the horrorist and uh, a ton of vocals in two-step like we talked about a week or two weeks ago. So as I mentioned earlier, it reached back to a time when dance music and rock and roll were closer. And somebody like Peaches had been knocking around in various iterations of the the underground noise and rock scenes for a while before she hit on her peaches um persona and the electro clash song and um let's go ahead and hear our next track and this is miss kitten and the hacker frank sinatra in 2001. Kitten and the Hacker, Frank Sinatra. Why'd you pick that
2: one? I just think it's the perfect representation of uh, of Berlin electro uh, clash. It's cynical but fun-loving. It's got a weird, sexy sound to it, very robotic, and uh, it's an original. That's 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 what I like the most about it. Is it's not some bad '80s cover. This is uh, this is something fresh, and the lyrics are obviously extremely fresh as well. So it's just uh, uh, hilarious when you hear it. And you just think of people dancing to this. It's the kind of thing that you hear at the club and you're like, what is going on?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there was definitely a sense of fun and tongue in cheek to this whole scene that that I think was much needed. I think the scene, like you say, had gone up its ass and and just gotten way too serious and intelligent, if I can say the dreaded word. Um, but then Reynolds kind of ends the chapter and his and question mark, you know, at that point, this was a scene... That was really big in a few places that was getting some momentum in the dance underground. And it was getting a ton of media attention. Because it was a scene in New York, this happens over and over again, Um, scenes in London and New York, and other media capitals tend to kind of get taken out of the oven early, as it were. They don't have time to really bake the way they do if they're in a backwater uh, like Liverpool or Detroit or something like that. And so his question is, you know, is Electro Clash going to break big? And he's wrestling, you know, I don't know. So many of the hits are covers. I don't know if they've got the songwriting talents. And there's so many vocal effects that it's disguising uh, the singers. And he's not sure that the people have the singing chops, which turns out, I think he was wrong about that, not realizing that vocal effects are going to be kind of one of the dominant and most interesting things of the 21st century, that quality singing chops is no longer really a key to admission. But I think he kind of did turn out to be right that this scene didn't deliver. I I mean, I, I don't know who were there people that really thought this was going to be the next big thing. I mean, there were so many kind of next big things cooking at the time, but it definitely didn't produce a superstar act
2: well electro clash might not have made it but electro did and that's that's kind of the interesting thing about it is that uh the electro clash may have died because electro clash as we said you can you can point to electro clash as being like that 1998 to 2003 scene uh with very very specific uh audio fidelity kind of uh tells but electro in general as a as a as a, as a dance Thing, like what DJ Hell and all of those guys were kind of pushing and what evolved on his Gigolo Records label coming out of that, swallowed everything. Like, uh, like basically from 2003 onwards, uh, almost everything in Europe turned into this weird mishmashy algamation of, of electro house, electro techno, and electro trance. Like uh, big room trance kind of got eaten by electro. Ferry Corsten released an album that, that basically was electro and and everyone on trance everyone doing big uplifting hands in the air uh, ecstasy gurners dropped that trance sound and followed Ferry corston into the into electro and and uh, as i said like germany was just over like so much electro house everywhere so I mean electro in general one, It's just the very specific small electro clash subgenre that kind of lit the fuse that started everything else. Uh, just, I mean, it could it could never evolve to a point where it's still relevant now because it, it's a, it's a sound that that sticks itself sticks its flag in the ground and is just left behind uh, because of that. But I mean, uh, uh, as far as like uh, an, an impetus, a catalyst for for everything else, you really can't under undervalue what Electroclash did. It, like every scenes like Japan there, they have some some of the craziest electro disco stuff for like 10 years after this because of what Electroclash started.
1: And I also think it's interesting that Fisher Spinner, who was one of the flagship acts of the scene, Their stage show was massively elaborate. I think they had up to 10 people performing. They had multiple costume changes. And they were able to tour Europe. And and I suspect that they were kind of playing Johnny Appleseed and that they played a role in how popular and how dominant Electro becomes in Europe in the next decade. But that kind of stage act, it was too expensive to tour the States with that kind of thing. It's one thing if you can take an hour drive and hit the next major city, you know, uh, Antwerp, Rotterdam, you know, that kind of thing, just boom, boom, boom. But it's another thing if you have to drive across Wisconsin and South Dakota to get to Seattle or, you know, drive across Texas or something like that, it's, it's get across the Appalachian mountains so you can get to Atlanta. It was just not viable. And so, and I just don't think
2: it was maybe a sound that was open enough to, to, to be able to sell across America. This is, this is, this is a sound that you could plop down, you know, uh, it, it it better be. It it better be a city, one of those cities that ends up on a t-shirt, you know, like New York, Berlin, Amsterdam, one of those sexy cities. Like you can't you can't take this to Atlanta. Like Fisher Spoon in Atlanta would not do well.
1: No, I don't think so. And America's homophobia was also a big hurdle, which, you know, as bad as homophobic as we are now, we were worse 20 years ago. So yeah, a lot of things. But like you said, the influence was big and it wasn't just in the dance scene. I mean, people like Lady Gaga and the Scissor Sisters were clearly inspired by many aspects of this, the scene.
2: Yeah. And this is again, that, that where you can't underestimate or undervalue what, what electro clash brought because, uh, because there are so many offshoots in in a whole bunch of different directions, like uh, from pop to punk to rock to, I mean, indie dance is the thing that I'm sucked into now. And indie dance comes completely out of, out of electro clash, forcing, you know, the beatport once again making a mess of everything. But they created an indie dance genre because there was so much uh, electronic music that was being made with electric guitars now that they needed an indie dance category because electro clash pushed them in that direction.
1: An important, an important blow against the Empire. And then in the Wikipedia entry on electro clash, they they cite The Guardian, the English newspaper, as saying that it was, you know, one of the two most significant upheavals in recent dance music history. And I was like, I got to track this down. And it was by a guy named Tony Naylor. It wasn't from a major article. It was a pretty small feature. I mean, uh, there's cherry picking to, to use that quote, I think. But when he says what, I was like, what is the other most significant upheaval in recent dance music history? And he said it was minimal techno. And I just had to go, WTF? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't quite get it. I mean, it is it is surprisingly big. I don't really know what comes out of it. I always felt like that was kind of, um, you know, when you leave like a uh, like a computer running for too long and it gets into like a weird loop in the corner. It's like uh, you come back home and your uh, and your your robot vacuum cleaner is stuck in the corner. I always thought that's what minimal techno was. <laughs>
1: At least it's not like you know if your Roomba hits a, a dog poop or something and just smears everywhere. I'm not sure what genre that would be. A ah, we'll keep...
2: bro step, brother.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be right. My favorite genre. We're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Well, um, another thing was that some people say that the critics were openly disdainful. That it's one of these things that got a lot of media attention, but it tended to be in. I wouldn't say the gossip sections, but it would sort of be in the news sections of a lot of publications. And then the critics, and And this is the era when sites like Pitchfork are first coming to prominence, when the first music blogs are coming up. And they were openly disdainful of, of the electroclash scene. They just wrote it off as shallow and, and cynical. And you got to keep in mind that what they were into was like Bell and Sebastian and uh, the Abbott brothers and this really twee sentimental style of indie rock that they were really pushing. And um, you know, the 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 just not not gonna be into electro clash. And this was a period when bloggers actually had some influence because it was sort of like when Rolling Stone first started publishing in the late sixties, nobody had ever seen a quote unquote serious magazine that was talking about rock and roll. Blogging was the hot new thing. It was shaking up politics. It was bringing people from outside the journalistic career ladder into media and, and writing, and people were making their voices heard. So people were taking bloggers seriously in a way that I don't think we could relate to uh, now. And so they were kind of dismissing the "quote lipstick and synthesizer" shtick uh, of it. And another thing that happened was 9/11 happened in late 2001, and the the dot com bust happened around 2000 and so this was a scene i think that depended on some wealth and prosperity and peace and it just didn't seem as fun after 9-11 i mean it was still kind of going on but i definitely remember a difference in the way it was seen and perceived pre-9-11 and post-9-11 it's just not something that artists could account for but let's hear our last tune this is vitalic you prefer cocaine from 2001.
0: like a machine. like a machine. Dance like a machine.
1: was Vitalik's you prefer
2: cocaine why'd you pick this one I think it's uh, the perfect track to kind of show people how electro went from being that kind of quirky percussive thing to it returns back to its 4-4 to a to a more traditional techno 4-4 sound and Vitalik really uh, took a lot of those saw edge synthesizer sounds it's most definitely still got an electro sound to it but he pushed it into a new place which is kind of where all that electro tech comes in too later. And Vitalik is one of those French artists that, uh, uh, this is another one of those examples where there's not a direct leap from electro or electro clash into French touch, but you can hear the bridge with Vitalik.
1: All right. And clarify for me, because this is confusing because we talked about Daft Punk who had come along in the mid nineties and made a big impact and I could swear we use the term French touch to refer to that stuff. Is this French touch a term that comes more into usage after the turn of the millennium?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, at the time, uh, I'd say it was five years – it was at least five years after the release of homework before any I ever heard anybody say French touch. And it's very much like – I'd say I only really started hearing people talk about French touch in like 2010 – and now it's kind of uh, it's 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 been applied to everything before it was kind of like people call it filter house. Uh, and I mean, I've seen when we were when I was doing research for this episode, I was looking up, you know, electro as a, as a genre. And a lot of people were classifying homework, Daft Punk's homework as an electro album. So it kind of goes <laughs> to show you how uh, how fungible uh, genre names can be.
1: Yeah, they they absolutely can, especially, you know, when you deal with the telescoping of history and and the different perspective people have at the time versus when they look back on something and things that get lumped together in the time can come to see radically different. And if, you know, if the events of the early 2000s knocked electroclash, the big financial crisis in 2007, 2008, 2009 really killed it. it. It really started to look tacky. And at the same time, like I mentioned Lady Gaga, but you also got to mention Keisha, they uh, had emerged. And to quote Roland.com, they borrowed the style, sounds and motifs while toning down the vulgarity for mass appeal. And eventually, Electro House, a movement that took much from Electro Clash, earned praise. The genre rose in popularity around 2010. It did so by updating the 80s retro aesthetic. And once the mainstream took hold, it reaped rewards for the innovation that LGBTQ people and women had pioneered uh, and then didn't, didn't share the wealth back. But I think in retrospect, my memory of Electroclash was that it was just this sort of flash in the pan. But I think, as you pointed out, it turns out it had a lot more lasting impact than that yeah
2: i mean half the the big techno names that are still around uh, you know playing boiler room sets and doing podcasts on resident advisor and stuff like that they're all the same people i mean tiga is still around miss kitten still around um uh, there's, there's a lot of these names are are still doing things just under the moniker of of techno but if you go in and you listen you you hear all the same 80s influence synth synth riffs and stuff like that so they we might have we might have thrown out a bit too much of that of the new wave pop element of it all and that's where i think electro clash is useful to if, if you want more of that that's the name of it you can go and you can find more like that but electro is still very much alive and well yep. just uh, just all wrapped up and in, in other stuff
1: and i have to say i enjoyed the listening for this um a bit more than i expected to and it might be in the same way that it was fun for a few months in, in 2000, that, that it was fun for a few days to listen to. I don't, you know, We'll be moving on to the next chapter, and I won't get to really uh, put Fisher or Spooner to the test to see if they've lasted the, the, the test of time in my listening collection. But anyway, that's our chapter on Electroclash. Next week, we're going to come back and talk about Reynolds' treatment of the— uh, rest of the 2010s, a chapter he calls Crisis and Consolidation. Then after that, and that's the last chapter in our edition, the 2012 edition. And after that, there's another chapter that Simon us that's been published in yet another edition somewhere where he catches up. And it's very interesting because he wrote that Crisis and Consolidation chapter before the big EDM explosion of the 2010s. And so it's kind of a downbeat chapter. And then the next chapter, the final chapter before we interview him, Is kind of dealing with the sudden success, the out-of-nowhere success, the the back-from-the-dead success of EDM. So for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at LetItRollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week... Nate and ryan will be back to discuss the second half of the 2000s an era that could be characterized as the darkness before the dawn or maybe not let it roll as a pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheompodcasts.com